The National Rifle Association, the NRA, has been hurting in the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, like a lot of organizations, it was having problems uh, before, but now has uh, been affected in an even greater way, cutting staff and salaries uh, amid the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, of course, the NRA has faced uh, a lot of struggle before, but also built itself up to be the most powerful uh, nonprofit, believe it or not, in uh, the world and uh, a political uh, force in this country. And my guest writes all about it in his new book. Frank Smythe is an independent uh, journalist uh, who has uh, chronicled this organization, um, the NRA, The Unauthorized History, is his book, and he joins me to talk all about it. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Michael. So you look at the history of the NRA from uh, an organization that focused on marksmanship and gun safety to this 5 million member group that resists every attempt to restrict guns in any way. I think it's so important to get to uh, that origin because it would explain a lot about how uh, it became the group it became. It wouldn't have been able to start out that way as a, as a nonprofit. It, it started out in a way that was far different uh, and certainly more... Uh, acceptable in terms of being a nonprofit group. Tell us a bit more about it. Well, the NRA was founded by former union officers based in New York City, actually Brooklyn, who were concerned about the possibility of the United States or the likelihood of U.S. military forces getting involved in Europe in a war involving European powers across the Atlantic, because they had just seen or heard reports about and investigated themselves the fact that the Austrian Empire, smaller empire, had or, or the Prussian Empire, excuse me, the Prussian Empire had defeated first the Austrian Empire and then the French Empire in the Franco-Prussian uh, War uh, after the both during and after the Civil War, and they wanted to make sure that U.S. troops were ready, so they promoted the NRA as a way to promote marksmanship among military forces, National Guard forces and also among the civilian population, as a matter of patriotic duty and military readiness. And this became, along with gun safety, the NRA's mandate right up to World War II. After World War II, they expanded by incorporating hunters returning from, many veterans returning from the war in their ranks. But they still focused on marksmanship, uh, gun safety, and, and hunting practices right up until 1977, when they had their own internal shift in favor of gun rights. But the thing mm -hmm. about the modern NRA, the NRA since 1977, is they don't want anybody to know how much the NRA has changed. And the reason is they don't want anyone to know that the NRA throughout most of the 20th century, from the 1930s through the 1960s, supported gun control. The NRA claims, for instance, that it is the oldest civil rights organization in the nation. And this is completely untrue. The oldest civil rights organization is the National Association for the Deaf, founded in 1880, and the NAACP, founded in 1909. 
The NRA didn't start talking about gun rights until 1922 in response to a then spreading example of a law uh, passed in New York in 1911 and did not even reference the Second Amendment until 1952 and did not embrace gun rights as their yielding aim until 1977. But they don't want anyone to know that. And that's why the hit, looking at the history of the NRA itself, according to the NRA's own records, is so interesting and I think so important. Absolutely. You write about um, how the NRA and its leaders supported uh, gun laws, gun uh, safety laws, gun control from the 30s through the 60s uh, in response to the rise of organized crime and political assassinations, respectively. Tell us more about those stances in response to uh, what was happening in the country when it came to crime and how then lobbying became more of a focus with the Cincinnati Revolt of 1977. Well, back uh, during Prohibition, you had the rise of organized crime in the Al Capone days. And to Tommy guns, to submachine guns, became very popular among gangsters. And the 1929 St. Valentine's Day Massacre on Chicago, in Chicago, organized by Al Capone, was one of many that left a mark uh, on the nation and made politicians as well as the leadership of the NRA start thinking there needed to be some kind of change, some, some kind of reform. So M the NRA leadership testified in Congress, came out in favor of the National Firearms Act of 1934, which outlawed fully automatic weapons, including submachine guns, which was the main goal of that act, and the NRA supported it. And NRA leaders at the time... Uh, described it as a sane, reasonable, and effective law, applying a balancing test to make sure that the rights of gun owners were still respected, but that they were open to gun control. And then in 1968, after the assassinations of JFK, Martin Luther King, and Bobby Kennedy, the NRA supported the Gun Control Act of 1968, which outlawed mail-order guns like the one that was tied to the assassination of JFK, among other measures, and the NRA leader at the time said that modern society has the dynamism and complexities of modern society require new challenges or bring about new challenges that require new solutions, showing a cost-benefit, a balancing test, if you will, a sense of pragmatism and reasonability that marked the NRA throughout that entire period. And what's also interesting is both of the two leaders, prominent leaders that took those positions were also both decorated military veterans, especially uh, a man named Milton Record, who's fought in the Mexican expedition against Pancho Villa, who then uh, was decorated in World War One and World War Two. The NRA is constantly celebrating military service men and women as part of their ethos today, but they've buried the records of these leaders, including including uh, other men uh, who have, who have uh, Merritt Edson, for instance, who won the Medal of Honor, because these men were decorated war heroes, but they also supported gun control. So the NRA, the modern NRA, has done a very good job until now of keeping all of this in the dark so it doesn't belie the myths they've told about their own organization in order to advance their interests, which have been defined for the past 43 years since the Cincinnati Revolt as gun rights. And, and before we get to that in 1977, just uh, for a lot of our listeners who might be wondering this, was that stance, that demeanor, that image of the NRA 
um, in part or or in whole um, to sort of um, you know have a good PR image in sense of making sure they didn't seem like they were promoting uh, gun use, or was this really genuine and and what they truly believed? Well, no the uh, the shift in nineteen seventy seven was was very genuine. They um, they were. They they saw the Gun Control Act of 1968 as nothing less than treason, and uh, and the and the and the figures before weren't promoting gun control uh, for for any other reason that they came to the conclusion that it was necessary that public opinion right. demanded okay. some control, right, right, right. as was said. No, they it wasn't posturing right. on their part. They right. they really believed it. There's no doubt about. So that. talk about 77 and the shift. Well, 77, they saw the Gun Control Act of 1968 as treason. And so a group of people inside the NRA who then uh, ended up being forced out of the NRA decided to plot their way back to power. And there were two men, one of whom was uh, Harlan Carter, who was a former Border Patrol officer and chief from Texas. And the other man was a man named Neil Knox, who was also from the Texas-Oklahoma Plains further north uh, in Texas. And these men, it was not to organize NRA members who were hardliners like them to travel to Cincinnati to vote on command as he had men spread out among the room with walkie-talkies. As he went through a series of parliamentary procedures, as he knew the NRA bylaws better than anyone else and used them against the old guard, ended up uh, uh, creating the, the sense of a scandal by playing secret audio recordings claiming that the old guard was selling out the NRA on, on gun rights, and then fired them one by one so then they can then uh, have themselves voted into power, which is what occurred. The man who was the father of that revolt, Harlan Carter, is somebody who, uh, who in 1931, when he was 17, shot and killed an Hispanic youth in a dispute near his home. He was tried. It was front-page news in the Laredo Times in 1931, he was convicted of murder and served time in jail and later had that, that murder conviction overturned on appeal on self-defense grounds. Carter then changed the, the second letter in his first name, which was Harlan, Harlan, to Harlan, 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 Harlan with a, an, o, an O is for the second vowel instead of an A, and managed to keep that entire episode quiet for 50 years until 1981, four years after the Cincinnati revolt, and he took over the NRA. And he's the guy, this man who had been convicted of murder and then acquitted, who set the tone for the entire organization. What's interesting is the NRA now doesn't like to talk about the Cincinnati revolt. You won't see any references to, hmm. to those terms in their literature, right? They don't want anybody to know because that would suggest that they've changed. But just this past October... Wayne LaPierre, the NRA CEO for the past 29 years, has come under fire. They face an attorney general investigation from the state of New York into allegations that seem credible that the NRA violated federal and state tax code by diverting funds to their tax-exempt foundations, to their operating wing, which is not tax-exempt, in violation of the law. At the same time, LaPierre himself came under fire from Oliver North from the Iran-Contra days, and some of his other allies, including Ted Nugent, where these two camps were rivaling for control of the NRA leadership just last year, accusing each other of embezzling money or being overpaid or overspending, charges which seem 
which seemed quite quite credible uh, uh, today. It was then in this context, just this past fall, that LaPierre referenced Harlan Carter in his own column in the American Rifleman and other NRA monthly magazines, invoking him as a mentor and a great leader. Wow. So this man, Carter, who was past is extremely controversial, when it suited LaPierre last year, he invoked him, even though most of the time they try to keep his legacy quiet. And if you go to the NRA National Firearms Museum, the only statue to any NRA leader in that entire museum uh, uh, that's, that's an actual image and a, and a large bust is of Harlan Carter on the floor of the museum. Wow. Uh, the book is The NRA, The Unauthorized History, and Frank Smythe is the author and my guest. Looking to the NRA today, the present day, and Donald Trump uh, and their relationship, uh, Trump obviously frequently champions uh, the Second Amendment and uh, talks about the NRA, and we know that the NRA had given him a lot of money uh, in his 2016 re-election. A lot of that has been uh, questioned as to where uh, it came from. Uh, you uh, describe Trump as the most ardent champion of um, the NRA in the White House that they've ever had. And again, it's something maybe listeners might not be aware of because they associate the NRA with the Republican Party for years. Um, but really, they haven't seen this kind of a defender before in the White House. Well, just to give you a sense, the NRA rarely in, rarely in its history has endorsed candidates for president. Ronald Reagan was the first and uh, and they and it's only it's only periodic periodically that they've endorsed other candidates. Uh, George H. Uh, w. Bush they did not endorse, uh, for instance. George W. Bush they did not endorse his first uh, run for office. They only endorsed his reelection. They've been very careful. And the NRA also had never been invited to uh, to speak. Had been given the floor at the Republican National Convention ever until the 2016 convention in Cleveland that also nominated President Donald Trump for president. And that's significant because the NRA, back during the, the two, late 2000s and early 2010s, the biggest speaker they could get, the biggest name they could draw for their national convention every year was Glenn Beck, the erstwhile Fox News star, both before and after he was dismissed over his anti-Semitic rants. But now... The NRA every year, starting before Trump was selected, has had uh, speakers from including President Trump, Vice President Pence, Senator Cruz and a host of others. So the NRA and the and the Republican Party have grown much closer under Trump. Now, a lot of gun rights activists in and outside the NRA do not necessarily trust Donald Trump. They know that he flip flops. They know that he is capricious. He came out after the El Paso and Dayton shootings last summer and said he was considering background checks and then did a flip-flop once LaPierre got him on the phone and talked him out of it, which is really quite significant. But So they don't trust him necessarily, but he has come out in favor of the NRA and embraced the NRA more so, and the NRA has embraced him more so than ever before. And that's because Trump knows that gun rights activists, including the people that are protesting or have been protesting in Michigan and Kentucky and Virginia and other states against COVID-19 health measures, that they remain a loyal part of his base. So while the NRA has been associated with Republican views for quite a time, 
this 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 merger of interests really is quite new, and it's most likely to continue in some form even after uh, Trump either leaves or is or is voted out of office. It really just you know completes um, a, a, a an understanding of the way Trump has you know pulled these uh, forces from the the base of the Republican Party that have been kept at arm's length right close to him. Uh, you know, people had an understanding of how he did this with evangelicals and the religious right, how he's done it with, uh, y- you know, the the whatever you want to call it, the, the, the white supremacists or the alt-right or whatever, but obviously uh, with the NRA too. I think a lot of people hadn't had that understanding, and uh, it, it's really fascinating. The book uh, is fascinating in the history too. And, uh, it's, it's great to have you on the program to talk about it. Thank you. Thank you. My pleasure. Uh, Frank Smythe is the author of NRA, the NRA, the NRA, the authorized history. And, uh, you can follow him at Smythe, S M Y T H Frank on Twitter, the NRA, the unauthorized history, I should say. <laughs> We're back in a few minutes. The Michelangelo Seniorelli Show.